0: Power second quarter 2021 results conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference call is being recorded today, July 30th, 2021. I will now ter- turn the call over to Mr. Randy Moss, the Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead.
1: Good morning and thank you for joining us today to review Capital Power's second quarter 2021 results, which we released earlier this morning. Our second quarter report and the presentation for this conference call are posted on our website at capitalpower.com. Joining me on the call are Brian Vazjo, President and CEO, and Sandra Haskins, Senior Vice President, Finance and CFO. We will start with opening comments and then open the lines to take your questions. Before we start, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements about future events made on this call are forward-looking in nature and are based on certain assumptions and analysis made by the company. Actual results could differ materially from the company's expectations due to various risks and uncertainties associated with our business. Please refer to the cautionary statement on forward-looking information on slide 2. In today's discussion, we will be referring to various non-GAAP financial measures as noted on slide 3. These measures are not defined financial measures according to GAAP and do not have standardized meanings prescribed by GAAP and therefore are unlikely to be comparable to similar measures used by other enterprises. These measures are provided to complement the GAAP measures which are provided in the analysis of the company's results from management's perspective. Reconciliations of these non-GAAP financial measures to their nearest GAAP measures can be found in our second quarter 2021 MD&A. I will now turn the call over to Brian for his remarks starting on slide four.
2: Thanks Randy and good morning. I'll start off with the highlights of the second quarter and comment on our 2021 outlook. We delivered strong second quarter results that significantly exceeded our expectations, largely driven by our performance in Alberta, where the Alberta power market continues to be robust with a positive outlook. Accordingly, we've updated our 2021 financial guidance, with ranges above the top end of our original targets for adjusted EBITDA and AFFO. Despite the impacts from the Genesee 2 forced outage that started in mid-July, that I'll comment on shortly. In line with our dividend growth guidance, we've announced an approximate 7% dividend increase that is effective with the third quarter 2021 dividend. We also continue to make solid progress on our approximately 1.7 billion in growth projects. As part of our goal to be net carbon neutral by 2050, we continue to advance our CO2 reduction initiatives. This includes carbon capture and storage agency where there is significant government support and the development is going very well. For the Genesee Carbon Conversion Center, we continue to investigate the commercial opportunities for carbon nanotubes and board approval for the project facility is expected later this year. Turning to slide five, Genesee 2 experienced a forced outage in mid-July caused by a generator failure. The outage is expected to last six weeks with return to operations anticipated in the third quarter of this year. We plan to utilize our Clover Bar peaking facility to partially mitigate the Genesee II impact. The three-week planned outage for Genesee scheduled for October will be advanced and completed during this outage. Moving to slide six, this chart shows our solid track record of dividend growth with eight consecutive years of dividend increases, averaging 7% per year. As mentioned, we've increased the common share dividend by approximately 7% to 2 cents 19 per year, or $2.19 per year, starting in the third quarter. We're also maintaining our dividend guidance for a 5% annual increase in 2022. As you can see, the AFFO payout ratio continues to track below our long-term payout target of 45 to 55%. Turning to slide seven, last month BC Hydro released its draft integrated resource plan In that draft IRP, it stated that BC Hydro is not currently intending to renew the the long-term electricity purchase agreement for our island generation facility that expires in April of 2022. We are actively participating in the IRP review process, including retaining technical experts familiar with BC Hydro's utility resource planning and transmission systems operations to support the review of the draft IRP. Comments are due at the end of this month, with the final IRP expected to be filed by the end of this year. We are also engaging with BC and local government officials and other stakeholders. We continue to believe island generations, dispatchable generation remains critical to the reliability of the BC system, particularly on Vancouver Island, as again shown by recent weather and system events. With the current transmission difficulties they're experiencing on Vancouver Island, island generation has been continuously dispatched since July 9. I'll now turn the call over to Sandra.
3: Thanks, Brian. In the second quarter, we completed a successful equity offering of approximately 7.5 million common shares, including the over allotments that raised gross proceeds of $288 million. Following the closing on June 2nd, share price rebounded from the issue price of $38.45, and is currently trading approximately 9% above the issue price. On the debt side, we executed a $150 million US dollar private placement of 12-year senior notes. The notes have a coupon rate of 3.24%, which with the inclusion of a forward starting swap settlement that was put in place for the issuance, equates to an effective interest rate closer to 2.5%. 12-year notes demonstrates investors' continued confidence in our long-term outlook. Transaction is scheduled to fund in late October to better align with the cash flow profile of our growth projects. We've also had recent affirmations of our investment-grade credit ratings and stable outlook by both S&P and DBRF. Earlier this month, we announced the closing of our inaugural 1 billion sustainability linked credit facilities or SLC. This involved amending our existing credit facilities including a two-year extension to transition them into five-year SLC. Pricing is in line with our pre-COVID pricing grid. The SLCs are structured with one KPI tied to our CO2 emission intensity reduction target of 65% by 2030 based on 2005 levels. The agreements are structured such that borrowing costs increase or decrease based on annual performance against the target. These financings have reduced the financing risk of our capital program and the need for additional equity offerings for current growth projects. Turning to slide 9, the Alberta power market continues to be very robust. Above average temperatures in June contributed to an average power price of $105 per megawatt hour in the second quarter that was three and a half times higher than the $30 per megawatt hour in the second quarter of 2020. In the second quarter, our trading desk captured an average realized price of $75 per megawatt hour, or 42% higher than a year ago positive market outlook is reflected in forward prices of approximately $94 per megawatt-hour for the last half of the year. For our Alberta commercial portfolio, our base load generation is 42% hedged in 2022 at an average contract price in the high $50 per megawatt-hour range. 2023 and 2024 were 30% and 15% hedged respectively at an average contract price in the mid $50 per megawatt hour in both years. This compares to current forward prices of $72 per megawatt hour for 2022 and $61 for 2023 and $52 in 2024. On slide 10, I'll review our financial results for the quarter. As Brian mentioned, financial results compared to budget significantly exceeded our expectations Adjusted EBITDA was $241 million in the second quarter, up 11% from a year ago. The increase was due to higher Alberta power prices that resulted in a 28% increase in adjusted EBITDA for the Alberta commercial segment. However, this increase was partially offset by the impacts of planned outages at our Decatur and Arlington facilities in the U.S., lower wind resource at most of our wind facilities, and a stronger Canadian dollar. Due to seasonality, the second quarter is generally the lowest quarter for AFFO. This year we generated 91 million in the second quarter, down 6% from a year ago, as stronger plant performance was offset by 11 million of higher sustaining CAPEX scheduled in Q2 2021, and the Milner line loss AFFO impact of $7 million in the quarter. AFFO per share of 83 cents was down 10%, from the second quarter of 2020. Slide 11 shows our performance for the first six months. Adjusted EBITDA of 544 million was up 21% compared to 451 million for the same period in 2020. The main driver for the increase was the higher Alberta power prices where our realized power price was $76 per megawatt hour compared to $58 a megawatt hour a year ago. Lower corporate expenses also contributed to the higher adjusted EBITDA, mainly due to the acceleration of coal compensation revenue. The FFO was $250 million, up 16% compared to $215 million a year ago. Higher plant performance from strong Alberta results were partially mitigated by higher sustaining CapEx in the first six months of 2021, and $13 million in line, Milner line loss ruling impacts to AFFO. Overall, we're seeing strong performance in our key financial metrics in the first half of the year. I'll we'll now turn the call back to Brian.
2: Thanks, Sandra.
3: First,
2: turning to slide 12, I'll review our performance for the first half of the year compared to 2021 targets. In the first six months, average availability was 90%, including outages at our Decatur, Arlington, and Shepherd facilities. As mentioned, Genesee 2 is currently offline with a forced outage, but it's not expected to materially impact the 93% annual availability target, as Genesee 2 had a major planned outage scheduled in the fourth quarter that will no longer be required. Sustaining CapEx was $47 million in the first half of the year compared to the $80 million to $90 million annual target. Based on our current outlook, we've increased our adjusted EBITDA and AFFO annual targets largely due to the strength of the Alberta power market. Of note, the updated guidance range is higher than the top end of the original guidance ranges and reflects the estimated impacts from the Genesee II outage. In the first six months, we reported $544 million in adjusted EBITDA compared to the revised annual target range of $1.09 billion to $1.14 billion. Lastly, we generated $250 million of AFFO compared to the revised $570 million to $620 million annual target range. To wrap up, I'll cover our growth targets as highlighted on slide 13. We continue to make progress on all of our renewable projects. This includes developing and constructing seven renewable projects on budget and on time for commercial operation starting between the fourth quarter of this year and the fourth quarter of 2022. For the repowering of Genesee 1 and 2, all regulatory approvals have been received and construction is expected to begin in the third quarter of this year. Targeted operational dates are late 2023 for Genesee 1 and 2024 for Genesee 2. With our major projects underway and the strength of our balance sheet from recent financings and our performance, we are positioned very well to pursue our $500 million committed capital target. This could be continuing to grow our renewable assets and or acquiring midlife contracted natural gas assets. I'll now turn the call back over to Randy.
1: All right, thanks, Brian. Anastasia, we're ready to take questions.
0: Certainly. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one, on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star than two. we'll pause for a moment as callers join the queue. The first question comes from Maurice Choi with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
4: Thank you and good morning. Um, Maybe I'll start off with um, a follow-up to one of the points you made in the prepared remarks. You discussed the Genesee Carbon Conversion Center as well as the Uh, More broadly, uh, can you discuss uh, what you need to see uh, in order to commit to these two projects? Specifically, what is within your control and what isn't? Um, As well, you know, if you could compare the returns from these projects that you expect uh, versus the range of development assets that you currently have on the go, that would be great.
2: Okay. Um, Thank you for the question uh in terms of um the the uh, two projects uh when we look at CCUS and i'll start with with that one um you know c- continues to go well and and you know what we need to see uh, in terms of of proceeding is firstly the uh government programs that we see uh and you know have not changed our view nor has the government changed its view in terms of the kinds of support that would be available for this kind of a project so obviously that needs to come to to fruition and i would say you know those uh, on those fronts things continue to be quite positive Uh, secondly uh obviously that the technology needs to to uh to to work itself out in terms of both cost and in terms of uh, applicability, and, and you know, we are looking at relatively um, stable uh, technologies at this point, And so we don't see that that, that would uh, necessarily be a, a difficulty. So from the CCUS standpoint, you know, we continue to see it being very positive and moving forward. Now, depending on the types of government support that we're looking at can have a significant impact on what we see as a hurdle rate. So, you know, for example, if part of a overall package of support um, given to these kinds of projects is, say, a guarantee of carbon price for 10 years, then that certainly, you know, takes an element of risk out of the project. Uh, But having said that, when we look at what would be an appropriate uh, hurdle rate for this kind of a project, we would start from a merchant perspective, that end of the spectrum, and then you know, adjust it depending on what we see as uh, various kinds of support for the project, and in particular, the commodity risk associated with uh, CO2. So that's that's uh, the, the, the general uh, framework for uh, CCUS. Um, the other thing, sorry, in terms of CECUS, that we'd have to see is obviously, you know, the Alberta government is pursuing a track of uh, uh, carbon hub and you know uh, spokes associated with you know, the pipeline access to uh, to what might be uh, the uh, spots to to bury the carbon. That needs, of course, to move along and and to to come to fruition. You know, we certainly wouldn't want to get ahead of that development. Um, We would like to see that move along uh, very quickly and uh, be in place uh, from a a number of different perspectives before we would uh, move too quickly to uh, to, uh, commit uh, our dollars to uh, the CCUS facilities in regards to uh uh, gc3 um you know the uh design work continues to 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 go very well Uh, and um, so we're not seeing that there's a any technical issues associated with with moving forward with it um what we do uh what we continue to to be evaluating and, and and more or less finding know what are the, uh, the different uh, markets to to be utilizing uh, these carbon nanotubes uh, in the short term and continue to explore that uh, the cement uh, testing continues to, to be ongoing uh, in fact there's a uh, significant uh, uh, cement testing that that is being kicked off uh, as we speak and so we're, we're uh, we'll continue to be bullish from that perspective so we need to see you know, some significant uh, commercial uh, uh, step forward in terms of uh, people actually signing up for carbon nanotubes, or you know, a clear identification of a, of a, very, of a vibrant market that it can tap into before we actually start construction of the GC three. Likewise, we look at that from probably a merchant plus hurdle rate, given that uh, you know it, it is largely you know more speculative than um, a merchant market. So we'd be looking for some pretty robust uh, uh, long-term returns associated with that project. I might also comment that uh, just in terms of um, just in terms of the way of looking at you know our development going forward. Um, There is a a fairly long process associated with getting uh, carbon nanotubes and and variations of carbon nanotubes approved from uh, both a a Canadian and U.S. um, regulatory perspective as a quote-unquote new material. And that takes about uh, uh, 12 to, say, 15 months. And we're in a situation now that um, when we find the, the, the carbon nanotube to start putting through this process, um, that gives us uh, more than enough time to uh, finish, uh, polish up the, the design parameters associated with uh, GC3 and to, uh, to complete it so that we'll have regulatory approvals and completion of the project happening simultaneously.
4: Thanks. And to be clear, whilst we start at a merchant return level or a merchant plus, is the ideal end goal to have more than 50% or maybe even 70% contracted? Or are you happy to have it merchant and then backfill the contracted bits with other developments that you may go um,
2: for? Well, the nature of the market, and, and this is, you know, the same with you know in any sort of quote-unquote material. Is it's not typical for there to be long-term contracts uh, associated with with uh, the supply of materials. So um, it would be good to have um, long-term contracts, but we don't believe that that is practical. There may be shorter-term contracts uh, for a year or two, or Uh, Something of that nature, but you know, we don't believe the nature of the market is such that uh, long-term supply contracts um, would be available.
4: Thanks. And on my final question, keeping the theme of contracting, um, amidst your discussions with BC Hydro with regards to island generation, maybe more broadly, how do you view your current recontracting profile? and more specifically, does it change your desire to acquire midlife natural gas generation assets? Um,
2: actually, no. And the reason is, as I uh, indicated in, in, in the comments uh, thus far, you know, we see that uh, that facility is definitely needed on Vancouver Island. And, um, I would say the IRP that was put out by uh, BC Hydro uh, doesn't have the same level of um, diligence or analysis behind it that IRPs in the in the in, the, uh, in previous years have had. So you know it's very much uh, I would say incomplete from that perspective, and I think as the as their work is uh, is complete, and as you know parties like ourselves have input, I think we'll see a, a different answer. Um, uh, if if not in the IRP itself when it's out in December, ultimately you know as it goes through process with BC Hydro or uh, BCUC. So. We definitely uh, continue to believe that that, will not, uh, that, that that facility will be recontracted. When we look across the other recontracting situations, and in the near term, the next one is Arlington, uh, which comes up, uh, I think, in 2024 uh, or 2025. The outlook for that has been recently strengthened significantly. And that's because we're seeing, you know, significantly high prices in the Arizona market. We're seeing, you know, su- supply constraints starting to evolve. And, you know, the niche that we fill is particularly strained. So the outlook for recontracting in, in Arlington Valley, which is the next one, is very, very strong. Uh, When we look at um, what's the next series of recontracts, which is, you know, at the end of this decade, 2029 in Ontario, you know, the recent outlook uh, that was published by the ISO shows that all three facilities will be very much needed um, as we go uh, out the decade. Um, um, There's a significant demand for generation or new generation in Ontario and um, even under scenarios where everything gets recontracted, there's still you know, a very significant demand. And there are increasing constraints on the system. And our three facilities are on the right side of those constraints. So they are continue to be extremely well-situated uh, for being needed in the Ontario market. So you know, our outlook for you know, recontracting existing assets is very is actually stronger now than it had been before when we look at new assets obviously you know we continue to have to to, to scrutinize uh, not only the the uh the, the current contracts and current circumstances but you know definitely continue to in, uh, ensure that anything that, that we bring forward um has a very. Um, valuable market uh positioning uh, either physically or a um, particular niche that it fills. so um you know we, we continue to be very
5: bullish on that market great thank you very much
0: the next question comes from mark Jarvie with cibc capital markets please go ahead
6: yeah thanks good morning everyone you um, mentioned, Brian, that um, budgets and timelines are things with projects are, are going as planned. Can you just maybe give us a, a bit of a rundown in terms of exposure to some of these inflationary pressures we're all hearing about in terms of Genesee repowering and, and, this, and the Liberal projects, in terms of how much of the build costs are locked in and equipment costs are locked in at this point for those different projects? So, it very much varies obviously by
2: project you know a lot of the repowering uh is locked in i you know I don't have a, a specific uh, in mind, but the general sourcing of it uh, of materials and so on um, is largely you know at risk from a GE perspective uh, and uh, mitsubishi perspective, depending on the elements of the project that that they're working on so. Uh, I'd say, you know, very, you know, major components are, 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 are uh, from a cost perspective. The other thing that, you know, when we look at what the pressures are out there today, um, there's two components. One is, is, is the actual, you know, cost of, of, of material and, and supply-demand balance. But where we're seeing the major pressure on cost is on transportation. And the general perception is that, you know, there's a, a, uh, right now there is a, uh, has been a significant increase in terms of, you know, a couple hundred percent in terms of transportation costs, but that will subside. And uh, a lot of the deliveries associated with um, uh, the Genesee repowering would be you know on the other side of, of that delivery. And a, a lot of uh, that project is actually being sourced out of the United States, so don't really expect you know that element of pressure to uh, to impact on that project. When we look at the um, uh, renewable projects, the one in the ones in Alberta, um, a lot of the, the contracting per se was done prior to you know cost pressures, so. We do see um, some delivery cost pressures uh, impacting on um, the Alberta projects. We think that those are formidable and expected that the impact would be relatively modest on the project. We don't see any costs going sort of out of control and, and uh, you know, continue to be pretty bullish on those. When we look at the U- US uh, renewable projects, um, uh, the, uh, the contracting for those is still somewhat open. Uh, we do have some supply uh, elements in place. And as we move forward, we do expect that the, uh, the uh, particularly again, as I've mentioned earlier, the costs associated with transportation to, to be declining, which is, which is where we're seeing the greatest cost pressure um, in terms of uh, uh, the supply chain associated with our facilities.
6: And then with those solar projects um, in the Carolinas, do you have some flex in terms of start date or COD um, if you do kind of want to move away from some of these more transient effects that you're talking about?
2: Yes, we do. And, and we've been, you know, even with the Alberta projects, within the construction schedule, you know, we're able to move around some dates and uh, and change uh, the way in which we're executing on the project too minimize the impact of uh, some of these pressures.
6: Got it. Now, we wanted to come back to the Alberta market and talk about hedges in the forwards. Maybe just on the on the forwards, you know, 2022 has come up nicely as of obviously this year. 2023 is starting to move up a little bit, but not nearly as much as 2022. And I guess the view would be that there's new supply coming. But when you look at, you know, your repowering work that's more late 2023, is your assumption that there's still a chance that 23 forwards have room to move higher when you think about supply demand?
3: Yeah, I think, um, Mark, with respect to uh, looking out as far as 23 and 24, there's, you know, less liquidity out there. And certainly as we get closer to that date, you'll start to see uh, more reflective forwards of of where they will. You know, you're you're correct with respect to uh, increased supply during those periods of time, but we also expect um, higher carbon taxes as well, so I do think there's there's upside to to those years, but we, we won't see that until we get another year out or so, sort of similar to what you're seeing in 2022. It's it's starting to be more representative currently, but the the other years need to see more liquidity before it'll start to fully reflect uh, where where we would see it settling in those years. Okay,
6: and then when you look at the 2022 hedge position, you've taken it up the average price seems to have gone a little higher implies you're now starting to lock in some forwards in the sixty dollar range at least. That's still below where the forwards are. Like would you still want to keep adding more um, forwards here into twenty twenty two or like could you start to slow down here as you approach fifty percent hedging because obviously the prices on the forward curve are north of seventy dollars right now.
3: Yeah, as we have seen prices go up, we, it does inform our view as to incremental hedges. So we would be very opportunistic in terms of adding positions at a, a price that that uh, we see being in line with where we think things will settle. So, um, you know, we have locked in. You like to get hedges in place to to uh, protect, you know, the, the downside, if you will. But certainly our strategy has been to uh, be less hedged and, and be very opportunistic at only hedging at... Uh, at prices that we think are are more representative of forward. So So
6: so assuming you didn't see those if you didn't see any more really good opportunities to lock in pricing, you'd still be comfortable if you ended this year at fifty percent hedge going into next year.
3: Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think you know historically we've been somewhere between fifty to one hundred percent hedged um, under the the previous market dynamics, and and we're very comfortable to be less hedged in in the current market environment. So no uh, no expectation of of having to increase that hedge uh, position if we don't feel uh, we're going to be seeing prices um, you know that are that are competitive.
6: Got it. And I just wanted to asked a question about the updated guidance um, in terms of the changes and the midpoints of the EBITDA and AFFO. If, if I take the, mid, the new midpoints and what you've done year to date and think, kind of look between the cascade from EBITDA to AFFO, so the cash outflows for the second half imply between the two midpoints about $226 million and it was $294 million when you think of interest expense and correct dividends and whatnot in in the first half. So it's sort of a $70 million lower sort of cash outflow between EBITDA and AFF in the back half. Aside from maybe slightly lower interest expense and I guess the line loss not being there, what else would contribute to that? Or maybe it's just the ranges and using the midpoints maybe not the most appropriate thing to do. So any, any sort of commentary around that sort of thinking between the below the EBITDA line cash expenses in the back half of the year?
3: Yeah, I, I think um, if you're looking at the, you're looking at the difference between uh, adjusted EBITDA and uh, AFFO, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in um, adjusted EBITDA, we have the uh, coal compensation acceleration, and that's about twenty million dollars uh, a quarter of incremental year over year recognition. Where in AFFO, it's still on a cash basis, which is fifty million dollars a year. And that's all in Q3. So there is some distortion in in the timing as well as the amount of uh, of that component. And that's that's a, the, about the biggest difference between those two two metrics.
6: Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Thanks for clarifying.
3: And I guess, Mark, just the other thing too is um, below the line is, is the. Uh, Impact of taxes as well. So on EBITDA, to the extent that we were seeing, you know, higher plant performance, you're just seeing the the margin there. Where in AFSO, that's tax affected as well. So that okay. would be another difference between the two. The next question
0: comes from John Mold with TD Securities. Please go ahead.
5: Yeah. Hi. Morning, everybody. Um, maybe just. Uh, starting with the, the forced outage at Genesee to um, uh, you know meaningful forced outages at Genesee in general are pretty unusual. And I know it, it's still ongoing and, and is reflecting your guidance. But so I'm just wondering if there are any lessons learned there from, from the generator failure.
2: So I'm sorry, John, I didn't catch the last part of the question.
5: Just, I'm just wondering, you know, you, there are any lessons learned from from the the failure of the generator there you know could this maybe have been mitigated if you hadn't had to to defer i think the the outage was originally scheduled for for 2020 but i think it was delayed for for um you know covid understandable reasons is you know are there any any takeaways from the from the outage there
2: so, um, actually, I mean, we're, we're, uh, the way that things have come about, although obviously it's an outage, we've been very pleased with the way that we've been managing those assets. So there is a major rewind expected um, that, that even under no, normal course, continuing coal operations existing facilities, there was a major rewind expected around the, the, the mid-decade uh this year or, or this, this decade so you know there was there was a, an expectation that that the rotor itself was um, going to be in need of, of major major you know refit uh in in expectation that you know that's sort of signaling to you that there you may be running into troubles um even earlier than that um we actually have uh packages on site you know quote unquote strategic spares that that will you know significantly reduce what would otherwise be in the outage um, experienced with this kind of a failure so you know the the combination of you know uh of being able to uh, be you know somewhat conservative in ensuring that we have those kinds of uh, spare materials around such that when we have these kinds of failures. Uh, if this failure happened and, and we weren't well positioned, it could have been six months. So um, we're, we're, again, we're very pleased with how we are positioned to deal with this kind of a situation. So um, it, it confirms the, um, the, the need to ensure that you have the right strategic spares, that you um, you know, when you're looking at major maintenance happening, you know, sometime in in the future, that again, you should be prepared to move quickly and uh, and and, and uh, deal with it in in a more time, timely manner than than otherwise would have been the case.
5: Okay, thank. That's very helpful context. And then, um, just um, moving to your your development outlook, I'm just wondering if you can give us a bit of an update on. On, you know, beyond the stuff that's in the construction pipeline, an update on your uh, renewable power development activities in Canada and the US and and whether you're seeing interesting opportunities to either move forward with any, you know, new uh, projects or to increase the size of your potential uh, US development pipeline through additional early stage acquisitions.
2: So, my answer to that is all of the above. Um, we are seeing you know some positive developments uh, from an Alberta uh, and uh, Canadian perspective and uh, see you know some some uh, opportunities uh, moving forward. We are also on the u s side um, have some you know opportunities that that we believe you know may come to coalition in, in the relatively near term. But in addition to that, you know, we are looking at opportunities to expand our pipelines on both sides of the border from a renewable perspective. And, and you know there's uh, you know where we've been successful in the in the past is being aligned or acquiring I'll call it you know smaller developers uh, 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 as a one-off or a one off or series of of uh, developments. Um, that continues to, to, you know, be fruitful in terms of um, some opportunities out there, but we're also looking at, you know, the um, the fundamental uh, ground up development of of our own projects, and uh, you know we've been su- quite successful at that where where we've undertaken it. So we're looking at markets um, where it makes sense for us to actually from the, from the ground up, from securing the uh, the leases through to um, design and develop so uh, you know our, our pipeline will be getting built out from a number of different perspectives but even with that what we have today and what we're seeing you know we continue to see some, some significant opportunities in the nearer term
5: okay thanks for that and, and maybe just one follow-up question on island um you know appreciating you may not want to Get too much into contract discussions and and there's a, an active uh review process for the irp have you had any follow-up from vc hydro since the uh, transmission issues and cable bulging uh problems started early in july that you know recognize the aspirations of the irp just may not reflect the reality of of the, the grid on vancouver island and its its needs
2: so, we've been, um, uh, you know, our discussions thus far um, have been uh, with the government and uh, the, the, the BC government, uh, largely because uh, for logistical reasons and timings, we haven't had uh, a good opportunity to directly discuss it with BC Hydro. But that is being scheduled, and uh, those discussions will take place. Um, you know outside of the IRP process so uh, you know that we do have a number of questions and and we've informed BC Hydro these are the questions that we have and uh, you know and just out and out don't understand their conclusion based on the facts but uh, again we'll uh, we'll see where where that gets to um,
5: we don't believe that you know
2: uh, when you look at the IRP we don't believe that you know that is their you know final any stretch of the imagination. You know we do believe that it is a work in progress. And recent you know information suggests that you know they still have work to do in terms of that assessment. So um, you know we're, we're um,
5: we don't believe
2: that um, we're we're talking to deaf ears. Uh, we do believe that there'll be a significant receptivity to, to having discussions around the uh, the uh, recontracting of the island uh, facility
5: okay uh, I'll leave it there thank you for taking my questions
2: the
0: next question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank please go ahead uh, yeah
4: hello everyone um, just Kind of two follow-up questions. The first is that, you know, we have six months or I guess uh, seven months under the belt uh, regarding the Alberta power market in the new world order. You know, has your view of how market participants will act or what the kind of long-run sustainable pricing is changed uh, over the last six months?
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, the environment that you're seeing now in 2021 is reflective of uh, the market going forward in terms of of the dynamics and, and setting price. I would temper that with, um, in 2021, what we've seen so far is some extreme weather, both in February and in June, which has uh, driven prices, you know, uh, above where I would say you would expect them to be longer run. Um, and wind availability is something else that impacts on that volatility when you've got uh, extreme weather. So I think, generally speaking, the, the dynamics are are uh, what you will see going forward. This is the supply-demand sort of fundamentals, but um, artificially high, I would say, for, for 2021 when you're looking at $105 per megawatt hour. But um, when you look at the forwards, you know, going into next year, I think that's that's a little more representative of, of where you would expect it to be given um, where the market tightness might be at in, in any given year.
4: Okay, great. Then just as we take like, a look at your 2021 guidance, uh, you know, what kind of range of uh, power pricing are you assuming there,
5: or is it kind of relatively centered around where the forward curve is?
3: Yeah, so it's based on both our, our position and uh, the hedges we have on place as well as uh, our, our outlook um, for, for forwards for the, the balance of the year on our open position. Thank you. The next
0: question comes from Andrew Kuski with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead.
5: Thanks. Good morning. Uh, and I guess the question really revolves around The Alberta power market and just your trading desk philosophy and have things changed at all or is it really been the same And, and maybe I'll give a dichotomy of are you focused on capturing returns that are really acceptable to the capital you've put in the business or is it really a focus on capturing close to market price.
3: Yeah, Andrew. I think it's a combination of, of both. When you look at where prices are, um, you know, it's expected to be a return of and a return on capital um, for for our investments uh, in the in the market, but also in any given year, you know that um, there is volatility depending on supply uh, demand di- dynamics. So you're looking to optimize the price in in a given year based on uh, where you, where you're seeing prices settle. So. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a combination of both in terms of this strategy. You're always trying to uh, realize that the best price that you can and, on, and balancing that with, with volume as well. So it's really two pieces of, of that, uh, that strategy, if you will. So um, in theory, the, the market dynamics are allowing for, you know, appropriate level of returns on, on investment.
5: 'cause that's helpful. And then maybe putting aside you know, weather anomalies and, and other things, if you've just looked maybe from last year to where we are now and the evolution of dispatch behavior, you know, are there are there any major surprises that have happened in in the market versus how you thought it was going to pan out?
3: No, I think it's generally in line. There was, you know, certainly on some uncertainty around how it would uh, unfold. You know, it, um, there was sort of a, a range, if you will, of of um, price prices that you could expect, and so you know, you don't have a clear crystal ball. But uh, directionally, I think um, it it is lining up with what we would expect in terms of. Uh, market participants' um, behavior and, and just the, the commercial being a much more rational market in terms of how, how assets are being dispatched.
5: Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you.
0: Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then one. The next question comes from Patrick Kenney with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead.
7: Thank you. Yeah, good morning. Uh, just on the natural gas price side of the equation, and I guess thinking about the upward bias narrative that's out there right now, not only into this winter, but you know perhaps longer term. Uh, curious how you're thinking about mitigating your margin exposure there, you know, especially once power prices eventually come back down to earth and you know, the Genesee repowering comes online. Are, are you looking at strategic partnerships? Investments, or you know, long-term supply agreements that could lock in uh, the natural gas cost side of the the Alberta merchant margin equation. Um, and if so, what what might those structures look like?
2: You know, Patrick. I mean, we 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 have for a considerable period of time looked at you know, is there a strategic relationship out there in which you know we could um uh, you know access you know natural gas supply at um, let's say some something other than market and them getting some security of of market in, in return and what we found is that uh generally speaking the natural gas market isn't very reasonable what what they'd like you to do is you know lock in a very high forecast price and guarantee them that kind of a cost so we haven't found the market that receptive. And, you know, certainly in that environment, it's very difficult to, to establish a mechanism that is responsive to, you know, power price.
4: You know, with,
2: uh, you know, with increasing natural gas and, you know, especially now when we're, we'll be off coal, um, you know, natural gas price will have a significant impact on the margin. So, um, you know, as natural gas prices go up, that would be a variable cost for you know increasingly you know more and more generation in the province, and it would have an impact of increasing uh, power prices as it goes up. So you're a little bit naturally hedged by the pricing mechanism in, in the marketplace for uh, for power. so you know uh, traditional wisdom is that unless you really have uh, an ability to lock in both sides of the, you know, natural gas price and, and the long-term uh, price of power, you're probably better off to let it float with uh, the, the price of uh, the, the, the uh, electricity prices that you're seeing. So, you know, we continue to look at those opportunities and where we can find somebody that has the right sensitivity and there's some value shared between the you know the power generation side and the natural gas side um, in terms of sensitivity to where power prices go. It likely doesn't make sense to just lock in one side um, again, unless you know you you're locking in a side and and the other side is longer-term uh, power price commitments.
7: Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I appreciate uh, all the color and how you're thinking about that. Um, and then maybe just. Uh, Back to the island generation situation or, or I guess, recontracting process, can you maybe just um, provide a bit more color on on how this experience has, you know, changed your approach um, in looking at other mid-merit acquisition opportunities, either, you know, in terms of recalibrating your hurdle rates um, or perhaps taking certain jurisdictions right off the table?
2: You know, it is... um I mean, we're definitely going to be taking away some perspectives from, you know, this experience. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, and, you know, we often, you know, with, with investors and, and with, with uh, you know, you folks have, have utilized Island Generation as, as this is the one that, you know, this, here's the illustration of, of why something probably positioned makes, makes a lot of sense um, and, and so, again, you know, big surprise to us. Um, and when we look at these again in the longer term, um, you know, we do have to consider that there can be just out and out mistakes made uh, in terms of assessments of of um, utilization, and you know, part of what's underlying some of the thinking from the in, in the IRP is they're going to have very, very substantial and pretty quick um, uh, reduction of power uh, utilization through conservation methods and so on and so forth, which, you know, still, you know, are far away from regulatory approvals, etc. cetera. So, you know, just uh, there are things that, that can enter into the equation that, that aren't, uh, that, that are new or different. So you know, it'll probably broaden our perspective when we're looking at uh, new natural gas acquisitions, considering you know, perhaps maybe some of the more outlier uh, possibilities. So I would say you know, the, the hurdle rate per se, uh, again, they adjust depending on the, the, the particular risk profile you see in an area may in some future you know possible possible acquisition have an impact on hurdle rate i think though where it will have probably more of an impact is on the breadth of our assessment
7: got it okay and then last one uh, for me if i could just i guess to finish off on a positive here but um to follow up on the on the new renewables opportunity set You know, we're, of course, seeing big demand from pipeline companies and other infrastructure players looking to electrify their systems. I know they're running, you know, very competitive bidding processes, but just given your relationships with some of the larger players in Alberta, um, your development track record, you know, how should we be thinking about the size of your your backlog of opportunities today um, related to, to corporate PPAs, either you know, wind, solar, or other, relative to even, say, six months ago?
2: Um, it, we, uh, we continue to have a uh, number of, of opportunities that, that we are pursuing, and, and some, I'll say, are probably pretty close to fruition. And uh, some of those, to a degree, are relationship-based. But I would say when you look at the very large uh, PPAs that are out there, uh, those tend not to be relationship-based. There there are certain advantages that, that we and, and other developers like us have, such as, you know, investment grade credit rating, um, track record of delivery. There's been a number of PPAs, you know, in, in the Alberta market that have failed where, uh, um you know, a commercial entity has signed up with an organization and when the organization has, you know, got into the more detailed fl- planning, find that, you know, they can't move forward on the project. You know, you, we've seen a, a handful of failed projects in the province. So, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, when we say we're going to do something, we do it um, is very helpful. So there's a, a number of of those kinds of elements that that favor us and, and other uh, substantive developers so uh, but relationship I'm not so sure you know in the larger in the larger ones whether they actually uh, will make a difference um, you know a lot of it is just what's the cost uh, one of the other things though that does help us in the market is you know we tend to be a lot more uh, we can bring a lot more to the table in terms of you know people's load and, being able to manage it you know for example we can provide both wind and solar you know combination right now we can you know we've got a lot of flexibility we, we can actually round up somebody's overall power demands
8: so you know there's a
2: lot again that, that we can do that a, a number of different developers you know may not be able to do we can bring in wrecks from other provinces because we've got quite a broad trading footprint whereas you know, a lot of the other developers don't. So there's more tools we can bring to the table depending on, you know, what the, uh, what the specific requirements are of, a, of, a, of an off-taker. But they're pretty – they're getting increasingly sophisticated, and, you know, um, it's, 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 you know, it's becoming a very, very dynamic market. But, again, we continue to be uh, bullish in terms of, you know, our success uh, in uh, securing some PPAs.
7: Excellent. Well, again, appreciate all the color. Thanks,
4: Brian.
0: Once again, if you have a question, please press star one. The next question comes from Naji Baidun with IA Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
8: Hi. Good morning. Um, the first question is around like, it's portfolio optimization, and it's sort of related to the previous questions about island generation or, or, you know, your gas assets more broadly. Now, you've talked in the past about potentially monetizing renewable assets if the right investment opportunities presented themselves. I guess the question is, would you ever consider monetizing some of your gas assets um, at the right price, of course, instead of renewable ones? You know, we've uh,
2: you know certainly looking at assets um, and depending on you know the uh, the. the how much capital that we're looking for and so on and so forth. There are, you know, certainly some of our natural gas assets that would be um, relatively easy to be, you know, monetized. You know, part of the challenge that, that, that we face is that, you know, when you monetize a renewable asset, um, you know, long-term contracted asset, you know, the, uh, you know, what you receive in the AFFO you give up, you know, have a, have a particular relationship. When you look at a natural gas asset, typically you're getting less proceeds for the same level of AFFO that you are giving up in terms of the sale. So that's one of the things that, that, that comes into consideration, but absolutely we'd, uh, have that, have a, uh, you know, reasonable pricing, we'd consider um, selling natural gas assets as well.
8: I understand. It's the trade-off that you're thinking about between immediate financial contributions versus a contracted profile and, and renewables profile and then maybe diversification. That um, okay. That's, that's helpful. Maybe just a couple of questions for Sandra. Uh, can you provide any color on the sustainability linked credit facilities um, on either the terms or the incentives versus the previous structure of those facilities?
3: Yeah. So most of the the details around that aren't aren't disclosed. What I can say is that it's um, you know plus or minus five basis points um, for our performance relative to the par- uh, targets, and the targets are based on our emissions intensity, and uh, align with our trajectory to be sixty five percent below. Our 2005 level by by 2030. So there, that um, it is a, an annual target. So it's not um, where we are at the end of the five years. It is um, you know consistent with with most other SLCs you've seen out there. There are annual targets that uh, need to be uh, uh, met in order to uh, keep the pricing or to have it move move downwards or, or upwards in the case of of not achieving um, that level of intensity. You know, one other element of that uh, structure that I can share is just around um, the the treatment of structural changes. So to the extent that uh, we acquire an asset that was already um, in operations, um, we, we would have that adjustment made to the intensity target in that you look at it very holistically in terms of um, overall emissions. So to the extent that asset was already... Um, in operations, it then impacts your your targets. And likewise, you know, to your earlier question, if we were to divest of something uh, that had an emissions profile, our targets would be adjusted um, to reflect that as well. So um, there, there is that re baselining component uh, in the in the uh, structure.
8: Okay, got it. That's very interesting and and very helpful color. Um, Just last question on the the private placement of the U.S. uh, notes. Um, Do you see any other opportunities for similar uh, favorable uh, debt financing?
3: Yeah, I think I think it's been very favorable. Like the market has been favorable in both the U.S. private placement market and and the Canadian market as well. At this point in time, um, don't see ourselves going to the market absent um, any growth, but uh, feel very confident that uh, the, the the market is there for us if we did have to uh, raise capital.
8: Okay, perfect. Thank you very much.
0: This concludes the question-and-answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Randy Ma for any closing remarks.
1: Okay, if there are no more questions, we will conclude our conference call. Thanks again for joining us today and for your interest in capital power. Have a good long weekend, everyone.
0: This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day.